This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 118. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you that if you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. And you can find me on social media. You can find me on Facebook, at Brian McClanahan, on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. And you could subscribe to my YouTube page. Just go out and search for Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to search for all those things, just go to my homepage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you have all of my social media buttons. Please click those. You can find me there. Also, while you're on my page you can give me an email address and i will give you a free ebook forgotten founders and a free audiobook forgotten founders read by yours truly and i'll send you an email every now and then and if you do like this podcast you can support it you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support and you can throw a few pennies my way anything is appreciated help keep the lights on help keep the podcast going Okay, well, let me talk about uh, a topic that was actually brought up, and it's it's a topic that is um, in the news quite a bit now, and that is uh, federal disaster reliefs. And so uh, I want to I want to address this using some historical examples, and both of these examples are actually found in my nine presidents who screwed up America. So uh, if you've got that book, uh, you can go to the chapters. I'll talk about them. You can look at it again. But uh, for those of you that haven't bought the book, uh, you should you can get it for a buck ninety-nine right now on Kindle. Uh, it's a great deal. But um, I'm going to talk about a couple of parts of the book in dealing with two presidents that had to address a situation that's similar to what we're dealing with now. And we often forget that uh, it wasn't just, um, you know, this idea of disasters is not something that's new. I mean, people dealt with these things all the time. All throughout history, we've had disasters. We've had, uh, you know, natural disasters, man-made disasters. And so what role does the government have in providing relief for those disasters? And these are something, you know, this is something that people in the 19th century began asking about uh, because as we've increased our population uh, and as we've increased the amount of money the general government can take from people through taxation, we started asking questions about what can the general government do to alleviate some type of disaster. And so we've got a situation in Puerto Rico right now where the entire island was obliterated. They're talking about a year before people can get power back to the island. There's a max mass exodus taking place from uh, Puerto Ricans moving into places like Florida, which is going to change the demographics of Florida entirely. I mean, this is something that uh, people are starting to, uh, to talk about. You know, what is the situation in Puerto Rico going to do for the rest of the United States in terms of the electoral map? Uh, for, if nothing else. But you have all these people coming into the U.S. from Puerto Rico, and of course, Puerto Rico acquired by the United States in the Spanish-American War. So the Spanish-American War is the gift that keeps on giving in terms of uh, the, the impact of that war, even into 2017. We're talking about a war that took place over 100 years ago, uh, but yet it still is uh, a major part of American society today. And then, of course, we had the terrible flooding in Houston, caused uh, by Hurricane Harvey and uh, the disaster in Florida with uh, Hurricane Irma. So we have Harvey, Irma, and Maria, the, the, uh, tri the trifecta of nasty storms that just uh, obliterated parts of the United States in this last year. And so this last hurricane season, last a month. And so people are talking about 
Um, you know, what can we do to help these people? And there was a, a I remember reading an article about Hurricane Harvey and how uh, most of the people in the Houston area didn't have flood insurance because uh, it wasn't necessary where they lived. They were, this wasn't a 1,000-year type flood situation. Hadn't happened before. Nobody could, nobody could even find a record of something like this. Uh, even people that study these things were having a hard time finding evidence that anything like that had happened before. Uh, and so a lot of people, you know, people don't understand that uh, flood is not covered when the water comes from the outside in. That's not covered by your insurance companies. And so uh, you're looking at uh, large swaths of Houston where people were going to have to go in and pay out of pocket to fix their homes. And that's probably not going to happen for a lot of people because it's very expensive. You have to tear out flooring, drywall up to a certain point, dry out your house, uh, replace furniture and all kinds of other things. This is going to be uh, creating another major demographic shift as people from Houston move out of the area or they're stuck in federal housing. You know, FEMA is going to provide some type of housing for these people for a time. And so you have this situation. And now uh, there was some discussion about people being able to acquire federal loans to help pay for some of the repairs on their homes. But again, this is a situation where insurance doesn't cover it, and so uh, we've got uh, a major economic problem going on in Houston. And then you've got uh, damage in the Florida Keys and elsewhere, all the flooding that took place uh, because of Hurricane Irma in both Florida and into Georgia and Alabama. Uh, so you've got uh, you know some, some situations there. And so we're talking about what the general government can do in, in these type of situations. Now, from a purely constitutional standpoint, nothing. And I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to look at two presidents who said that exact same thing uh, over 100 years ago, or at least one case about 100 years ago, the other one over 100 years ago. Uh, they said the general government had no role in this. And I'm going to talk about disasters and how, you know, we tend to think that disasters, this is, you know, we, we just don't have these things. We've never seen anything like this before. Uh, people tend to act this way because uh, humans uh, have generally no historical consciousness. If it didn't happen in your lifetime and you can't remember it, it never happened. Uh, but we know that's not the case. And one thing we can say, at least I'm going to make a case, is that the more the federal government gets involved in this type of thing, providing aid, uh, providing disaster relief, the more people are going to partake in risky behaviors. And when I say risky behaviors in this case, it's building properties where they shouldn't be built. For example, if you went down to the Gulf of Mexico in the 1950s and 60s, and there are, or even a little bit before that, probably uh, say around World War II, uh, 1930s, 40s, Great Depression, 1940s, you would not have found a whole lot of properties on the Gulf of Mexico in that particular period of time. Even going into the 1970s, I remember my family talked about purchasing some property in the North Carolina region on the coast. And you could get property dirt cheap there. Now you can't. The property they could have purchased back then would sell for millions of dollars today. And uh, people are partaking in risky behavior because there is some type of financial uh, uh, backing for these properties. You know, the insurance is covering it, uh, which... Uh, has gotten astronomically expensive, but insurance companies will insure these properties. Uh, there is some belief that the general government will step in and try to get you some money in some way uh, if there is a major disaster. So what's happened is people are starting to build these properties. And of course, as people want a vacation, they want to go vacation right on the beach. So they're buying property, or they're buying up stuff. There, a lot of condos are being built in these areas. They're engaging in very, very risky 
behavior when it comes to building things because they can, because there is some type of assistance available if your property is completely wiped out. Now, let's say you go and you build a house down there and you get an insurance policy and you pay the insurance policy for a year, right? Even if it's expensive, you build a house right on the beach. Now, you've obviously got some money, so you're going to build a very nice house there. And your insurance is probably going to be fairly expensive. And I don't have the rates. I'm sure the insurance is, is subjective, so your rates are going to vary. But let's just say you put that property down there and a Category 5 hurricane comes through and obliterates the house. Now the insurance company, it was a million-dollar house. Well, the insurance company has got to pay a million dollars for that house, even though you may only pay it a year. And let's say you paid 20000 or $30,000 in insurance, whatever it is. I mean, a high number. Uh, and, and that's what you paid, but they're paying out a million dollars now. So it's a loss for the insurance company. Also, you can build a house in a high-risk area. And this is what happens when you start getting into a paper system like we have, where it's not based on hard currency. You've got, maybe this is John Law. This is, uh, you know, the paper, the, 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 uh, the paper society, the paper economy. Uh, and so you have risky, risky activity uh, because people can do it. They can speculate and they can do it, and uh, somebody's going to pay the bill. Whether it's, uh, I mean, here in Alabama, uh, where I live, when we have all the tornadoes and other things and some some natural disasters, and of course, more and more people are building homes, and and uh, there's more people around now, so tornadoes are, are tending to hit people more, uh, and than they used to, and so there's more and more damage. Well, insurance rates have gone up in the state of Alabama several years in a row. Plus, you've got the Gulf Coast in Alabama, where you've got hurricanes and you've had some problems there. And so, again, insurance rates are going up, uh, and uh, this allows people to engage in some risky behaviors. It might have been 100 years ago, people didn't necessarily uh, want to build in a place where you could have uh, a terrible flood. Um, or a terrible disaster. Uh, in the town in which I live, it flooded all the time. It used to until they dammed it up. Now it doesn't flood anymore, but there are plenty of pictures out there. The people that had to live in the flood area, it was not considered premier uh, real estate. These were This one area was called Slop Jar Alley because that's where all the, all the uh, destitute and homeless lived. Uh, the drunks, uh, and so this is you didn't you didn't live along the riverbank if you wanted to ensure your house wouldn't flood. Uh, now you can build houses along the riverbank, and of course you can probably get you get flood insurance. You can get that covered, uh, and so if it floods, no big deal. Uh, but again, that's that is the general government stepping in and saying, hey, go build your house in a floodplain. That's a good idea, uh, and so it's not a good idea. It never has been a good idea, and people recognize that for a long period of time. You didn't build your houses in a floodplain. That's a very bad idea. It's not something you want to do. It's not something that makes good sense. Uh, and the people that did it uh, suffered the consequences. Now there was a um. A book that I read recently entitled When the Mississippi Ran Wild. And the author talks about how bad the Mississippi River used to flood all the time. Uh, it was a major problem all throughout American history, all throughout documented American history. Major floods, major situations that are uh, problem that were problematic for people, and they learned how to deal with it. They learned how to manage the flood cycles uh, because they happen regularly. And you look, go back and look at human history. Go back and look at the history of Egypt and the Nile River and how it flooded regularly, and people learned how to deal with that. So uh, you have these major river systems, they flood. 
And uh, people weren't expected to have somebody come in and bail them out when they built in a, ha a house in an area that was going to flood. They learned how to deal with it. They learned how to manage the flood situation. And that made it uh, to where the personal responsibility was on them to, uh, to handle the situation. But we just don't look at things that way anymore. So the question was, though, is federal aid to uh, disaster victims constitutional? And I'm going to point to two presidents, and I, I, again, I'll say absolutely not. Now, this is not a popular political position to take, and some would say it's, uh, you know, it's a heartless position to take. Uh, I'm not suggesting that uh, you know, this is uh, a popular position, but the question was, is federal aid constitutional? And I'm going to say no, it's not. Uh, now, that doesn't mean state Governments cannot engage in some type of disaster relief. Of course they can. State agencies can do that all the time. The states can do anything they want, really, that's not denied by Article 1, Section 10 of the U.S. Constitution. And there's nothing in that article that says states cannot provide disaster relief. The other thing is private individuals can get involved in this. Of course, we saw with Hurricane Harvey people going down trying to help out, and they were being run off by the police and other things, or people were helping out, and they were getting shot at. So uh, we've got you know a, a cultural situation going on in America that uh, is problematic. But, of course, the state and private individuals can be involved in these things anytime they want. The question is about federal disaster aid. So I'm going to go back and give you two examples. The first is Grover Cleveland. And uh, in 1887, Grover Cleveland vetoed what's known as the Texas Seed Bill. Uh, and if you've read my book, and again, if you're uh, you know, uh, someone who follows politics, you might be aware of this situation. But maybe you're not really that familiar with Grover Cleveland. Well, Grover Cleveland, of course, was from New York. I call him one of the best presidents in American history. In fact, he's one of the four presidents in my book who tried to save America by trying to save the executive branch from itself, from becoming too powerful. But he vetoed the Texas Seed Bill in 1887. The bill would have spent $10,000 in providing Texas farmers with some drought relief. There was a terrible drought in Texas that year, and people had lost everything. Uh, and so the idea was to provide some seed for these people so they could get back on their feet and producing crops again, and the general government would pay for it. Now, Cleveland vetoed the bill. He vetoed the bill. And this is what he said, quote, I can find no warrant for such an appropriation in the Constitution, and I do not believe that the power and duty of the general government ought to be extended to the relief of individual suffering, which is no manner properly related to the public service or benefit. A prevalent tendency to disregard the limited mission of this power and duty should, I think, be steadfastly resisted to the end that the lesson should be constantly enforced that though the people support the government, the government should not support the people. Now, progressives have taken that quote and gone mad over it, particularly the last line. That the people should support the government, but the government should not support the people. They go mad over that. I remember watching a documentary that the, uh, I think it was the History Channel did on presidents. It was this little series they did. And they had one of these leftist little twits up there talking about the presidency and how, <gasps> how dare Grover Cleveland say that? How heartless, how mean, how nasty. Of course, this guy is a communist. And so uh, you're, you're going to have these people say these kind of things. But look at the first part of the message. I can find no warrant for such an appropriation in the Constitution, and I do not believe that the power and duty of the general government ought to be extended to the relief of individual suffering. So he's talking about the general government. Now, that's a great statement. He says 
general government. He doesn't call it the national government. He doesn't call it the federal government. He calls it the general government because it was for general purposes only. The general purposes of union, not for individual suffering. The general welfare clause is not about providing people with houses and clothing and money and jobs and all the things we think that the general welfare should be today. Grover Cleveland was 100% right. Uh, and so Cleveland could find no constitutional justification for such a position to alleviate the evils of evolution or the evils of uh, natural disasters. Uh, and this was a beautiful veto. He was exactly right about this. Uh, this is why Cleveland was such an effective uh, president in terms of trying to restore constitutional sanity in the general government. Uh, he also vetoed all kinds of other things. Uh, you know, in fact, issued the most vetoes of any president in American history until Franklin Roosevelt, uh, most of which were over pensions, which were also unconstitutional. But uh, this was disaster relief. There was a drought, and Cleveland said, we can't do anything about it. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah, we feel bad for these people. And if Texas wants to do something about it, then let Texas do something about it. But right now, the general government is not going to be involved in this. And, uh, you know, why should we take public money? Why should someone in Massachusetts pay for farmers in Texas? And why should farmers in Texas pay for the rich merchants in Massachusetts? I mean, why should that happen either? This is the question that people need to really ask about these type of economic redistributive policies. Why should someone from somewhere else be forced to pay for to stuff the pockets of someone in another state doing another business or whatever the case may be? Why should the general government pick winners and losers? And this is a serious question, one that's not often asked. And of course, uh, particularly not when you look at the mainstream politics and how people uh, address things. So again, uh, constitutionally, Cleveland was 100% right. Now, Politically, he took a beating over this. Even today, Grover Cleveland takes a beating because of that last statement in this very famous veto message where he said it's not the government's job to support the people. But he's 100% right, legally, constitutionally right in that position. So Cleveland said that federal disaster relief was unconstitutional. What about Calvin Coolidge, another one who essentially who did say that federal disaster relief uh, was unconstitutional? Now, um, what happened here was the fl a flooding, a terrible flood of the Mississippi River. Uh, this, uh, this happened in 1927, and the Mississippi River flooded to levels not seen in American history at that point. Um, and every state the river touched experienced some type of flooding. So 1927 was a horrible year for flooding. In fact, it was 30 feet above normal. Now imagine that. The Mississippi River, 30 feet above its banks. So you're talking about huge swaths of territory that are going to be underwater. And a lot of the people that were suffering in this particular situation were black Mississippians. Many of these people were Republicans. In fact, probably all of them were Republicans who had supported the Republican Party because of its position on um, Reconstruction. And so this became a political quagmire for Calvin Coolidge because Calvin Coolidge had to rely, or at least he wanted the vote for these people, from these people, and now he's seen as abandoning a major portion of his party's constituency, these, uh, these African-American uh, Republicans in Mississippi. So the thought was, well, you got to do something. Uh, but Cleveland, I'm sorry, uh, Coolidge stood his ground. He didn't at first. 
He didn't think it was wise to do anything first, even though the cost and property damage and infrastructure alone nearly equaled nearly half a billion to $1927. You're talking about a tremendous amount of money. Half a billion, $500 million, $1927, which I don't have a conversion in front of me, but you're talking billions and billions of dollars today. So we look at you know natural disasters like Harvey, terrible situation, or Irma or Maria, and how much money it's going to cost. We've had these type of disasters in American history before. This stuff isn't new. Floods aren't new. Tornadoes aren't new. Hurricanes aren't new. Fires aren't new. Uh, none of this stuff is new. Uh, one thing you can say about fires, um, and I think uh, there was a, a national talk show host who was addressing this in California. you got terrible fires going on there right now. Uh, that area has fires, uh, and it used to be fires were, were a, 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 a way to cleanse the environment. Uh, it'd burn out all the loads, the sagebrush and everything underneath, and you'd have these trees. But they happened all the time. Now we're just building homes and forests, and we're not cleaning out any of the underbrush anymore, and that's creating a, cr- a climate that's ripe for forest fires. So forest fires are actually an essential part of the environment. So are hurricanes. Uh, for years, for a couple of years, we had a terrible drought here in the southeast because we hadn't had any hurricanes. Uh, right where, where I live, we've gotten th- almost four inches of rain in the last two days because of a hurricane. And uh, that sometimes is all the rain we'd get in a given month. Uh, but that rain, of course, would be beneficial for the area, It'd keep us out of droughts and other things. So uh, this is very important stuff. But again, we look at these things, <gasps> disasters, and we got to have the uh, federal government open up emergency relief funds and all kinds of things to help people that uh, have some some flooding issues or some problems in that way. Now, again, is this constitutional? It's politically expedient. Uh, you're going to take a beating nowadays if you don't just open up the coffers and say, here you go, have all the money you want uh, for federal disaster relief. We're going to send in FEMA. We're going to make sure you've got all the ice, food, uh, generators, whatever we can. We're going to send it all down there. We're going to we're going to make sure the National Guard is is uh, is nationalized. We're going to have the Navy show up. We're going to do everything we can to make sure that uh, there's as little suffering as possible. But uh, and so that's politically expedient, without a doubt. You're not you can't you can't go back from that now. There's there's no going back to Coolidge or Cleveland. But constitutional. The question was, is this constitutional? No, it's not. Uh, in fact, this is what uh, Calvin Coolidge said, uh, which is rather interesting. He said, uh, in his fourth annual message, Coolidge addressed a Mississippi flood, suggesting that, quote, the government is not an insurer of its citizens against the hazard of the elements. We shall always have flood and drought, heat and cold, earthquake and wind, lightning and tidal wave, which are all too constant in their afflictions. The government does not undertake to reimburse its citizens for loss and damage incurred under such circumstances. End quote. Now, imagine if Donald Trump stood up and said that today. Or Barack Obama, or George W. Bush, or uh, you know George H.W. Bush, or Bill Clinton, or Ronald Reagan. Now, the only one who could probably get away with it would have been Obama. Because the media would not have uh, uh, run him over the coals as they would uh, somebody who's supposedly on the right. Uh, but certainly, uh, the fact is, Cleveland and Coolidge, in this particular case, Coolidge, are 100% right. The Constitution does not authorize a general government to insure people against the hazards of life. Now we want people to be insured against, uh, you know, for health insurance. This is the hazards of life. Guess what? Life is hazardous. You get sick. You get injured. Bad things happen. This is horrible stuff. 
Uh, and uh, Coolidge was just simply stating a fact. Yeah, uh, these things happen and it's awful. Uh, but the general government's not involved in this. Now, we could have a conversation about the states, where the states can get involved. And, of course, private individuals helping people out, giving you the shirt off their own back, uh, providing some type of aid, contributing to the Red Cross or other humanitarian organizations, whatever it is, for volunteering, doing things to help people that are in need. That is Christian humanity and Christian civilization. Without a doubt, these are things that people should be doing. The question is, is, is it, again, constitutional? And Coolidge was 100% correct about this. It is not. Now, Coolidge did leave the door open to some type of federal aid, saying that, quote, the national government should not fail to provide generous relief and that the general government was chargeable with the rebuilding of public works and the humanitarian duty of relieving its citizens from distress. So he did leave the door open, and in fact, Coolidge would eventually sign a bill sending federal aid into Mississippi. Now, he was doing it because it was politically expedient. I think this is the first time you see in American history a president buckle under the weight of political perception. Uh, Coolidge was buckling. Coolidge, in some ways, uh, was the first modern presidency. He he had a speechwriter, for example. Uh, no one had had that before. Um and uh, this was something new. Now, Coolidge didn't have a speechwriter write all his speeches. Coolidge did write some of his own. But, uh, you know, Warren Harding was the last guy who wrote his own speeches. This is why E.E. E. Cummings said, you know, the guy that uh, wrote a simple declarative sentence with three uh, grammatical errors is now dead. Cummings could not stand uh, uh, Warren Harding in terms of his uh, speech writing or speech uh, ability. But Calvin Coolidge, and what you start seeing is the speeches take a decidedly less intellectual tone over time. Now a president makes a speech on about a 6th to 7th grade intellectual level. Uh, it, it's just the way it is uh, because we've got to get it to a point where everyone can understand it. But Coolidge was 100% right about this. There was nothing in the Constitution that allowed the general government to provide any type of disaster relief, even though he did leave the door open and eventually he would sign a bill doing so. Before that, though, he sent Herbert Hoover into Mississippi, and Hoover took a grand tour where he uh, got a lot of uh, private investment uh, interested in Mississippi and helping out the flood victims there. Uh, The American Red Cross donated a lot of money. Uh, And so... Uh, There was some private interest in Mississippi, and that private interest eventually won the day, and then, of course, Coolidge is going to send money down there through federal funds. But the first bill that he got, Coolidge called it, quote, the most radical and dangerous bill that has has had the countenance of Congress since I have been president. And this was a federal disaster relief bill. He called it a radical and dangerous bill. Now, he also had vetoed a bill that would have provided uh, farm relief. Again, another situation where you're providing relief for people um, because of uh, a terrible uh, farm situation, uh, you know, agricultural situation. Um, And that was seen as also unconstitutional. Just like uh, Cleveland was vetoing a Texas seed bill, uh, Coolidge is vetoing a bill that would have expanded benefits to farmers in the United States. Now, we can... Depending on what section you're in, we can look back at this and say, well, this is a good idea. This is a bad idea. Uh, We have federal farm aid now. We have federal disaster relief. Uh, But it doesn't mean that any of this stuff was constitutional, that these people were were wrong legally. What happened was politically it became expedient because people wanted votes to buy them. Essentially, that's what's starting to happen. Uh, You know, people buy votes. 
the the general government will go into an area or a congressman will say, yeah, I mean, vote for me and I'll be a limited government guy, except for my own pet projects that I want to have in my dis- in my district so I can buy your vote. Uh, one thing I would give uh, Ted Cruz credit for during the uh, 16 campaign, he would go into areas that were predominantly agricultural and heavily reliant on federal subsidies for agriculture, and he would denounce them. Uh, he would say they were bad policy, bad economics, uh, because they let farmers engage, again, in risky behaviors. Or you were paying people to do something they wouldn't do otherwise. Uh, and so this is, a, this is an interesting situation um, where you know, the federal farm aid is also a form of welfare, just like corporate welfare. Uh, we, often, we often bash corporate welfare or we, have, you know, we, we pay large amounts of money to defense contracts and we pay uh, welfare to people who don't have a job, whether it's unemployment or uh, you know, dependent children, these type of things. But the government pays welfare in all kinds of different ways through subsidies. Uh, we subsidize all kinds of people uh, for a variety of reasons. We subsidize students through student loans. I mean, that's a form of welfare. Uh, we have Pell Grants, which allow people to go to school that don't make a lot of money. It's just another form of welfare. So we've gotten to a point in America where Americans want their cash drip. Uh, and so regardless of whether this federal aid is constitutional or not, it's actually a, a, a question that can't even be brought up. Because even if I said, look, federal aid is unconstitutional, we're always going to have it. Uh, if I said that uh, you know uh, welfare in any form, be it corporate, individual, any of that, is unconstitutional, it doesn't matter because we're going to have it. Uh, now, if we got the right people elected, maybe we won't, but I think there would be a political black backlash to a point where these people would not be able to handle it, ultimately. So the question of constitutionality is an easy one to answer. All of this federal disaster relief, all of the things that we see the federal government do in terms of helping individuals, whether it's through education, business, farming, disaster, all of these things are 100% unconstitutional without a doubt. The situation is, though, that whether they're constitutional or not, they're politically expedient now. And so people are not going to drop doing them. Uh, they're not going to say don't do them now. I mean, again, heroic to go into a farm area and say I would get rid of federal subsidies for farmers uh, and uh, and be able to stand there and debate. I mean, I will give Ted Cruz. I will also give Walter Williams, who did the exact same thing not long ago, credit for taking that kind of position because it is highly politically unpopular to do so. It's easier just to go and say, yeah, I'm going to continue your farm subsidies. Or I'm going to continue to pay you for corn. Uh, that uh, drives up the price of corn. And this is another situation where uh, Coolidge correctly assesses the situation. We're going to have massive price increases if you start having the government manipulate the price of corn and other things. It's going to happen. And so, I mean, this is is where uh, we look at federal aid as an economic wrong. Uh, It's not only a constitutional wrong, it's an economic wrong in many ways. Uh, And so that's something else we should talk about. But again, to answer your question, to answer the listener, here you go. Unconstitutional. All federal disaster aid is unconstitutional. None of it is, uh, but I don't, th- I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.